Brian. Hey, Mitch. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, happy to be here. Hang on. I'm just kind of playing with this. And Okay, there we go. Can you see me okay? Yeah, perfect. Well, it's good to meet you, man. Sorry, I'm, I am I'm sound. Hang on. Okay, I think I'm good to go. All well, right. hey, thanks for, for reaching out to me. I'm, uh, I'm always happy to talk about North Korea and U.S. foreign policy and pretty much anything else you can think of. Yeah, yeah, that is actually kind of what uh, what led me to hitting you up. You know, I guess you and Dr. Woods, Jeff Woods, went to PhD school together, and I hit him up one day and was like, "Hey, man, what do you know about the Pueblo incident? I've been doing some research." And he was like, "Man, actually, I know this guy who's like the guy." So and Jeff's a great guy. Um, so we weren't in grad school at the same school. We were in different schools but at the same time studying a lot of the same stuff. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, he, he got his PhD from Ohio University. I was at the University of Texas. Um, but we were, we were working on kind of the same time period, using a lot of the same materials. We got yeah. to know each other at conferences. Um, there's actually kind of a small network of about a dozen of us that became buddies in grad school. And now we're all scattered at academic institutions across the country, but we keep in touch. Um, and, and Jeff's just, I mean, he's a smart, he's not watching this, right? Cause I was going to say good things about him and I hate to do that if there's a public record. Um, but, but yeah, he's a smart guy. I got to think he's a great teacher cause he's funny and he's personable. And, and, uh, so yeah, I, I'm glad he put us in touch. Yeah. He's also been strangling me for over a decade. Okay. In, we we did jujitsu together. Oh yeah, that's right. And his kids too, right? His kids... I think are martial arts people. Uh, his son, Colin, did Taekwondo uh, when they were just, Woods got his white belt in Taekwondo. And I met him uh, when I was just getting, I was just going to school at Tech and I, I was training Jiu-Jitsu at the time and he asked me about it. I was taking a class with him. And then he started training with me and we've been training together for, man, he calculated it up the other day, but it's been well over 10 years. Wow. That's great. I, uh, so I, I did uh, Sean Ryu karate with my kids for many years. Nice. Uh, and then, uh, so I'm, I'm old now. But so we, I, I've got three kids and they're three or four years apart. So each one of them would start and they would do it for a couple of years and I would do it with them. And then something would distract them. You know, so my son was a hockey player and practice started to conflict. So he dropped karate. My daughter was the goalie for the field hockey team and the same thing. So it, last year, they all are out of the house. My, my son went off to undergraduate. My, both my daughters are in graduate school. So for the first time, there's no kids around. I did last semester. So August to January, I was in DC doing research. And then I came back in January, so this year. And I thought, all right, my kids are gone. What do I want to do with my life? So I went back to karate, went back to Sean Ryu. Um, and I did it for about a month. But I'm still playing hockey. I've been a hockey player my whole life. So I did about a month of karate, and then on a Wednesday night, no, Sunday night hockey game, I got crashed into the boards, and I ended up with a concussion. And then because I'm stupid, uh, on Wednesday, my hockey team flew out to Vegas because we play in a hockey tournament in Vegas every year. It's like the highlight of my life. So I shouldn't have gone. I had a concussion. I shouldn't have gone, but I went anyway, and I played, and I got another concussion in the Saturday game. So I came back and I was, you know, still gung-ho about karate, but the headaches didn't go away. So I went to my doctor and they said, look, you need to take two months, nothing, no hockey, no karate. So that's what I did. And now, of course, you know, all hell broke loose and no one can leave their homes. And so I haven't been able to go back. But, yeah. but even at the ripe old age of 52, I am hoping to get, get back on the mat in, uh, well, if life ever it stops being a Kafka novel. 
Yeah, man, that's great. I had no idea you trained. That's uh, I just had a guy on yesterday who was a jiu-jitsu guy, but he's also a white belt in karate. And man, just I, I own a martial arts school as, as well as teach, but um, I know tons of people who they do jiu-jitsu or karate or jiu-jitsu or taekwondo. And, yeah, yeah uh, you know, for me, it uh, like, I, as I said, I'm old. I'm not going to get in a fight in an alley somewhere, um, probably. But I just feel like my core strength and my flexibility are better. And I find that, like, even when I was doing it with my kids, I wasn't getting hurt as much playing hockey. Like, I just wasn't pulling muscles as often. And I wasn't as sore. I just felt like an overall flexibility and strength. So, so that's why I'm hoping to get back to it. Um, but, you know, right now I'm leaving the house, like, once a week for groceries, and that's it. So we'll see what happens. You know, while we're on the topic of hockey, um, I hit Woods up this morning. I texted him. I said, hey, Mitch is on at 11. You got any questions? He says, how does drinking improve your hockey skills as you get older? Well, it, it, it doesn't, but it makes you a much bigger hit in the locker room. So I, I'm probably – I was a good player back in the day. Um, I'm terrible now. Um, and my team is really competitive, and it's mostly younger guys who are really good. And I'm the captain. And people always say, why are you the captain? It's because I bring the best beer to the locker room after the games. Everybody else shows up with, like, a case of Miller Lite. I go out to like the local breweries and I bring in, you know, pints to sample and, you know, 10 different bottles of things to try. So that's the only reason I'm captain. So yeah, it doesn't really help with the game, but it's great afterwards. Nice. Very nice. Well, man, um, so I wanted to talk to you, like, I guess you've been doing a lot of, of writing um, during the pandemic, kind of about the pandemic and kind of taking a a historian's approach and I'd, I'd read a couple of articles that um, that had come out that I guess they'd come out just in the last couple of weeks since I've been talking to you about coming on. Um, one particular is kind of related to your you know what you're an expert in Asian American relations but it was kind of kind of Yang's take and I, I read that quote in that article and that was um it was interesting. I mean, you even cited Little Rock, which I'm sitting here in Arkansas right now, um, when you were um, yeah. going into African-Americans versus, versus Asian-Americans. I just wondered if you would talk about that article a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, so that's my new book. I said I was in, uh, in D.C. last semester, and I was doing research at the Library of Congress. And I'm working on a book that's a history of the African-American experience serving in the military during the wars of the 20th century. We're really doing World War I, World War II, Korea and Vietnam, and that's all. And, and the larger argument is, let's look at the way military service radicalized the civil rights movement overall. So, you know, World War I breaks out and African-Americans go, this is great. This is an opportunity for us to prove ourselves good citizens. We're going to go off and fight. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to buy bonds. We're going to volunteer for the service. Maybe we'll die overseas but we'll prove ourselves good Americans, worthy of equal rights, and then of course we'll come back and we'll be treated equally. Um, and so I've been actually writing the World War I chapters right now, and of course that isn't what happens. African Americans do, they buy bonds at a higher rate than any other race or ethnicity, a relative at least to their income level. They volunteer to serve, they volunteer for the draft at higher levels, um, but they face massive discrimination in the training camps and overseas. And then of course they go off to France to fight, and the French troops and the French people are so desperate for help that like they don't see color, right? These guys are being discriminated against. They're serving in the South, they're serving in Arkansas, they're serving in Texas, or they're training bases in Florida, in Kansas. And their commanding officers are telling them, hey, you can't go into the movie theaters. You can't go into the restaurants. You know, I know we're fighting a war to make the world safe for democracy, but don't go to the movie theaters with white people. And then they go overseas and the military is telling them, don't go hang out with the, the white French people. They'll hate you. And instead, the French people who have been ravaged by the Germans and are desperate for the war to be over, they, they don't care about color. They're like, oh, my God, Americans are here to save us and, you know, come into my homes and have dinner with us and date my daughter. And it's all great. So, so that's, sort of the, that's sort of the starting point of the book. It's, you know, how, how, did, how did these experiences in the training camps in the South and then going overseas, dealing with the rhetoric of, of you know, we're fighting for democracy, how does that slowly radicalize the African-American civil rights movement? And it's relevant to this article that you mentioned just because, you know, Andrew Yang had this, this piece in the Washington Post and he said, oh, the coronavirus, this is an opportunity for Asian Americans 
to combat discrimination by showing how patriotic we are. You know, volunteer and sacrifice, and that will show the world, that will show, you know, American racists that we are deserving of equal status. And I, I just, you know, I'm a historian, I look at everything in the historical perspective. And so my take on that piece was, look, we've tried that and it doesn't work. You know, that in World War I, African-Americans used the same rhetoric and all that happened when they came back, like not only were they not given equal treatment, it actually sparked a greater wave of violence that, that Southerners in particular said, you know, who is this black guy dressed in his military uniform who thinks he's coming into Fort Worth, Texas, and he's going to go shopping at the white stores? You know, all these, these guys who have come back from the military and have forgotten their place, we're going to show them. And so that gives us, you know, the, the real violence of 1918, 1919 against African-Americans because there's this backlash. So, so all I was doing there, you know, I try to use a lot of a, a, a U.S. history as it interacts with Asian history and as Asian-Americans have, have evolved in the 20th century in the United States, how their life and their society has changed to draw larger points about contemporary society. So in a lot of my writings, that's the message. And that's kind of what I'm trying to say there. I'm telling Andrew Yang, look, we've, we've been there, done that. Um, didn't really work. All that it really did was make things worse. And if there's an obligation to look at Asian Americans as, you know, good true Americans, it's, it's on the rest of society to do that because it's the right thing to do. It's not on Asian Americans to make special sacrifices to prove themselves. Yeah, man. And ironically, I'm just, um, just recording a lecture from our Arkansas history course uh, that I teach right now about, um, the race riots of 1919, uh, Arkansas, uh, the Elaine riot. Yeah. Was yeah. And, massacre. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually the chapter I'm working on now. Um, so, I mean, Arkansas obviously is central to this, right? We've got central high school, um, little rock desegregation. Uh, I was actually, so I gave a lecture at, um, university of Arkansas, little rock some years ago. I've got a friend there who invited me down. So I wanted to go see Central High School, which is now like a, a national monument. And just by coincidence, she took me there the same afternoon that one of the um, Central High Nine, one of the students who desegregated high school, was there. Um, so I got to chat with her and she showed me around. It was really, really an amazing experience. So, so yeah, I mean, you guys are, are right in what at the time was, was ground zero. Also, um, home of the Jerome and Rower uh, relocation centers in World War II. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, I'm not trying to single out Arkansas, right? This is the story of the South. And to a lesser extent, it's a st story of all of American history at this point. Even 1917, 1918, 1919, obviously it's worst in the South, but it's not like, you know, things were so good in, in, in the Northern cities and the Northern states as well. Yeah, I think, what was there, 350 race riots in that time yeah. span across the U.S.? Something yeah. Like that. So, yeah. Wow. So yeah, so so I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, the way things are right now, I'm sure that there's some people, some academics who are able to lock themselves in their room and are writing. I'm having a harder time. I mean, life is my, my, my you know, standard operations are, are disrupted. I've got three kids at home, one of whom's brought her fiance. Um, so there's six of us and three dogs. Uh, and I, it's, life is kind of chaotic. And I'm one of those people who writes best when I have big chunks of uninterrupted time. And I'm not getting that. So I'm doing what you said. I'm, I'm writing a lot more um, these short op-ed type pieces, uh, like the ones that you've mentioned. And I think, um, I don't know, maybe make a better contribution. Sometimes academics write books that like nine people read. Uh, I think my first book, like my mom probably bought a copy. I think she gave a couple to like friends and her mailman as Christmas presents. But, you know, um, you reach more people. And I've had a couple in the Washington Post, the New York Times and, and the Columbus Dispatch. So maybe, maybe that's the contribution that I need to make right now, because I'm not getting a lot of really serious heavy work done. Yeah, man, I, I'm kind of I'm set up to record here at the house, obviously, because I do the yeah. podcasting and I have a podcast studio. We Right before the pandemic hit, uh, we moved into a new gym, a new martial arts school, twice the size. We bought a new one, um, and it has its own podcast studio. It's about three times the size of the one I have here. Very excited about it, but we're closed down. Yeah. So, but so I mean, your lessons are all shut down, right? There's yeah. Like, doing anything private lessons, maybe? 
you know, we're doing a little bit. Um, there, you know, there's a few people going in and out of the gym, but it's very low key. It's very small, like one or two, three people at a time. Uh, and we're just doing all our classes like uh, through this app right here, Zoom. We're, um, we're, but mostly striking. Like the phase one uh, requirements with us doing jujitsu, if we were like, uh, we, have bo we have a boxing program. We, we have a kickboxing, fitness kit. We do a lot of stuff, yoga. Yeah. It doesn't require me, you know, grabbing you by the wrist or anything. Right. So, but it's going to be probably another month before we can start doing full on jujitsu again. Um, based off the projections of that phase one, two, and three that they've got out. And, and what about your classes? Are, are everything online now for you? For my college classes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I teach five classes a semester. Uh, everything switched to online. It really about the first week was, uh, you know, it just like getting in a new process of like, oh, okay, well, I need to set up a YouTube for this now. And I'm going to host things here and just getting my process down on putting things on Blackboard. But it's been pretty smooth for me. I know a lot of professors aren't like set up for that and yeah. it's been a struggle, but it really wasn't much of a, I'm, I'm in the groove now. It's, it's kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough adjustment, but it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, do you know, uh, Dr. Tom DeBlack? Mm, doesn't sound familiar. He's, um, he, he knows Woods real well. He's one of the authors of our Arkansas history textbook, but he retired last year and he's like, I think 70 years old. And, uh, he, he's helped me a lot. I went, just went to his house a few weeks ago with my Arkansas history class, but his, uh, he's retired, but he went to this one college to teach, um, this civil war class face to face. And then, like, right in the midst of this, he's a year retired. He's got to convert everything to online. Oh, yeah. He's just losing it. Yeah. So my daughter in grad school is teaching her first class ever at the University of Nebraska this semester. Oh. And uh, it was great for the first six, seven, eight weeks. And now it's all online. So that's a pretty tough adjustment, you know, the first time that you're teaching. Especially because she's in the theater department and she's teaching a class on, on makeup. And so it's hard to do that when you're not hands-on face-to-face, just like right, Taekwondo. You know, you can do certain basics, but otherwise it's kind of hard. But I, it is what it is, and, and in the long run, this is probably for the best. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that, that's, uh, you know, particularly, I, I think with like our, our martial arts school, I think kids, uh, a lot of parents are gonna be nervous about like when, when in the timeline to start bringing their kid back. So we're not even going to offer kids classes during that whole first phase. We're just going to uh, do some real limited adult classes and keep our, keep our space from one another. Yeah. And we're thinking about that. We're having those conversations in, in the colleges as well. I, I do some administ I've actually got an administrative position at OSU. That's half of my time. And so we'll probably be open again in the fall and no one really knows, but we probably will be. But even if we are, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of trepidation among the parents. And is everybody coming back? Are we going to have to have, you know, bigger rooms so that students can spread out? Sure, there's a lot of people who are just going to take online classes that first semester, even if we're open, just to be safe. So um, that's how it's going to be, I think, in all fields. Yeah. What are some ways, do you, uh, other ways you think that higher education might change? Well, actually, I think the, so I think the biggest change is I think this is going to expedite the process of the online teaching process. I mean, old fogies like me have always said uh, the face to face, you just can't beat the face to face interaction. I, I absolutely prefer that. Um, but the younger generation is so much more involved in the high tech, you know, the Zoom and the distance ed stuff that there's been a lot of pressure in the academic world to start doing more and more of the online, the Zoom type classes, other, other things. And there's been a lot of resistance. Um, I think this is going to expedite that process. It's also, I think, uh, so at the research universities like mine, we do a lot of um, bringing in scholars. We bring in people from our field to give talks and we exchange research and, you know, we bring in prominent names so that we can have lunch and talk amongst ourselves about collaborating and research. I think a lot of that's going to go online um, a lot more. So I'm going to be Skyping in speakers to talk about U.S. foreign policy and Korean relations rather than bringing them in in person. 
Um, and then, of course, there's the economic impact. I mean, I, the, the, I've long felt that the economic model that we're on is just not sustainable. Uh, colleges are too expensive. I'm at a public university. It's a little less expensive, but it's still pretty expensive. Um, and the state government and the federal government have been cutting subsidies for years and years, and yet tuition goes up. Um, and I think it's quite clear that to get students back in the economic decline that we're about to face, it's going to have to be some sort of better model for funding higher education. And I don't know if that's going to mean colleges are going to have to start slashing their prices, or if it means the government's going to have to step up and start funding students the way they should. Um, but one way or the other, you know, we can't saddle students with tens of thousands of dollars in student loans and, you know, charge 50, 60, $70,000 a year for an education. Uh, in the, the, not that we could have five, 10 years ago either, but we were making it work because students were going into debt. Um, but that's, that's just not going to work. So someone, someone at a higher pay grade than me needs to figure out how to make this all work in the future. But th there are changes coming. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I teach at a community college and that's been just everybody that I work with. It's a colleague. And I mean, I've talked with people at, uh, at tech and some other schools too, but um, it's, uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty right now about, you know, what's everybody I keep getting emails about like the funding equation and, and things that are you know I guess they're wanting me to to educate myself on but I'm like man this doesn't look good yeah so my my thinking I think that the places that are the most in danger are those smaller liberal arts colleges schools like the community colleges I think should be okay because they're always a little cheaper they're a little more tied to their their community um, people are always going to need an education, but a lot of those people are going to have jobs and they're going to need a couple classes here and maybe not the residential experience. So I think those schools are good. And I think the bigger state schools are going to be good because they have huge reputations and they get some state money. You know, it's those schools, those, and there's a bunch of them in Ohio with 3000 students and, and they, you know, they charge $60,000 a year. And they're competing with each other, and they always have been. But now I, I think those that's the first sort of shoe to drop. And, and so we'll see what happens from there. But, yeah, you're right. It's, it, it's a gloomy situation. Man, um, in that um, Colum uh, what I guess it's the, the Columbus Post article that you put out, you, you kind of voiced some concerns about uh, possibly getting back in the swing of things too early, also citing um, – a historical instance from the Spanish flu. Um, what are you, what are your thoughts on all that? I mean, I've been keeping up with the, just kind of the press conferences of, uh, daily and trying to kind of chart things cause I own a business and I'm, yeah. I'm wanting to know what, what their plan is. And man, it's, yeah. it, it just varies. Our state is not, I don't know if you've kept up with what Arkansas is doing, but we've been, um, We've, they've been, they made remarks on our state being a little lax a time or two, um, us and like six other states. But yeah. even our local government's like, well, we might be a little more lax than the state. Yeah. It's just, you know, but I, I have had some concerns about that as well. A good friend of mine who's been on the podcast, also a professor, lost his great grandma in, this, in the resurgence, the third wave of the Spanish flu. Yeah. Yeah, um, so that, that, that's the op-ed I had just yesterday, I think, in the Columbus Dispatch. Um, and, and, and so you're right, I, I'm, I'm trying to draw a balance there. Uh, Ohio has been pretty good in terms of locking things down. Our, our Republican governor, Mike DeWine, really snapped down right away. We were one of the first states to shut schools down and shut businesses down. And, and I think it's had a pretty dramatic impact. And our, our cases, number of cases and number of deaths have been pretty low relative to the uh, the size of the state, but we have growing um, concerns and there are people out protesting up by the state house and they're demanding we get, you know, open for business as soon as possible. Um, and I get that. My wife is the headmaster at a private school um, and, and, you know, they're, they're really solely dependent on tuition. Um, they're really worried about their future. So I get everyone's got to be worried about their businesses. And so I'm not in any way trying to discount those fears, but I am saying we can look at the, the long-term history of, of both uh, pandemics and economic downturns and see that it's really easy to open up too fast and the consequences that that leads to. So, I mean, I, I went in depth about San Francisco and the Spanish flu in, in you know, 1918, 1919, and it's the same story there, right? The flu hits, it's awful. 
Um, San Francisco mobilizes really well. Uh, this was at a time when people trusted the government and the media a little bit more. So they worked really closely to get the message out. Um, everybody wore masks, social events were shut down, schools were shut down. And this went for like three or four months and it was really effective and the disease was almost gone. And then people started protesting and they had this like anti-mask league was created to protest wearing masks. And they would hold these giant assemblies where like a thousand, two thousand people would come without masks just to sort of make the point that we could do this. Um, and then suddenly it spiked again. So it was basically like November 1st, people said enough of this and they stopped obeying the restrictions. And by late December, this disease that was almost gone was peaking again. And so then in January, the, the city stepped in, the public health officer passed some really stringent laws and, and it ended up eradicating the disease. But we do have to think about this. Um, so I am really sympathetic. I understand the need to get the businesses open again, but I want our political leaders to understand, well, well two things. So one is I want them to understand the possibility of a resurgence of, of the pandemic, but I also, I'm tired of hearing the rhetoric of, we're gonna lose more people because of economic distress than we will to the disease. That, was a, real, that was a real interesting point you were making in that article that I've, I've, heard, I've heard people take that path a lot, talk about suicides and- Right, right. You made some incredible points that, on the contrary, actually. Yeah, like it's totally counterintuitive. I, I mean, I get it. I, without, before I did the research, I would have said the same thing. Right? We're going to lose so many people to suicide that it's going to be more than the people who will die from the disease. But the reality is, in literally every economic downturn we've had in the 20th century, and the Great Depression is the great model, but, but really, really, there are studies that go from like 1870 up to 2000. Um, society health actually improves during every one of these economic downturns. And suicide rates do climb. Um, they climb very little, not nearly as much as you might think, but they do climb. Um, but at the same time, we just get improvement in overall society health. People aren't drinking as much and they're not smoking as much because those things are expensive and because they're not going out for a beer after work. Um, air pollution goes down. Auto accidents go down because people aren't driving to and from work. Uh, one of the, the really, I guess we should have thought of this, but I hadn't. So one of the most surprising things to me is people who have like already existing whether it's psychological problems or emotional problems or alcohol addiction or whatever, they find a stronger, stronger family network now because people aren't working. So they're home and they can take care of these people. Um, so, so really the, the eight, and I get the numbers wrong maybe, but I think the eight greatest periods of um, increased life expectancy in the United States took place during economic downturns. So, so there's really something to the idea that we improve society's health during these economic downturns. So um, I'm not necessarily advocating that we need to wait too long because I do understand the demands on business, but I do want policymakers to understand, you know, the full range of what history teaches us here. Yeah, no, I agreed. And I mean, even owning a business, I'm not like, trying to lay a trap or anything because I'm trying to get back to work. I mean, yeah. honestly, like when I was reading that article, I was like, hey, I'm that guy that he's talking about. Like I've done what I've, I've exercised more. Yeah, uh, me my too. diet is improved. I mean, yeah. I've spent more time with my wife and my dogs. Yeah. I've actually lost a couple pounds. Like everyone is talking about how they're gaining weight. You know, I got more time to exercise. I'm going out on my bike three, four days a week. I'm running a little bit. I mean, I miss hockey. I miss karate. Um, but, I, you know, um, I, I, we're cooking everything at home. There's no more takeout. There's no fast food. Uh, and we're watching our budget because I don't know what's going to happen with my wife's job. So, you know, we eat a lot of vegetables and I don't know. Uh, I, I, and I'm not in any way minimizing the potential business issues. And I guess what I'd like to see are just like you're talking about. Let's be a little bit more creative, right? Let's do Zoom classes to the extent that we can. Let's do some private lessons. When we get back to, to lessons, you know, let's spread out a little bit more. Let's, let's offer more lessons, more lessons, more hours to give people some more choices so that the classes aren't as crowded. So, you know, we just have to think outside the box, but it is an important, you know, important effort that we do. Yeah, man, and we're fortunate. We have in our new building four rooms and three mat spaces. Okay. And we could do striking in that fourth room. It's a yoga room. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's, yeah, I realize too empathetically that not all businesses are, are in the position that we're in, you know, like we're, we're one of the bigger martial arts schools in the state. We've, we were kind of 
prepared for something bad to happen yeah. uh, and have received some additional um, aid on our mortgage and stuff. So it's great. But there's still a lot of uncertainty. And but I, I'm I'm kind of paranoid. It's like, look, if we go back too soon, it's then we're going to have to close down for longer where it's like maybe we could, you know, we could stretch it out or be very smart about how we go back and uh and not have to you know do turn it back around like you were talking about in 1918 yeah yeah so um, i think that's what we need we need small business people like you you know thinking creatively thinking outside the box and just being smart about it and and hopefully we find that balance where people's lives are protected and at the same time business survives and in six months is booming again yeah man one thing um that just got on my radar also. Um, have you followed along with anything about this, uh, the New York antibody testing they've been doing? Yeah, I mean, there's so much out there right now. Um, since I, I published that article a couple of days ago, I'm inundated with emails from people saying, hey, have you seen what Sweden's doing? Right, hey, did you see this new case in California that was earlier than anyone had, had anticipated? So, so many different approaches. Uh, I, I'm, I'm cautious about everything. Um, you know, nothing has really gone through the, the severe, the, the trials and the detailed process that they usually go to. I know we're expediting everything from the antibody testing to the to possible vaccines to, you know, everything is, is really um, b being expedited to, in the hopes of putting everything to good use. But uh, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about everything at first blush because, you know, the, the, right, the prime message of the doctor is first do no harm. So everybody gets all excited. And, and actually, the same thing happened in San Francisco. So in like November of 1918 in San Francisco, they said, hey, it looks like we have a vaccine. And everybody said, oh, great, you know, back to the movies, you know, ba back to the sports, back to the theaters. And then it turned out it didn't really work. And, and so I, I am really cautious about that. So, you know, I know that there's a lot of good things on the horizon, uh, but still got to always keep in the back of your mind that, that these things are going to come slowly. Yeah, for sure. Also, man, I saw you joking about this, but I mean, what's going on with Kim's health? Yeah. So um, I have a piece actually coming out, I think tomorrow, um, as part of a, a, a round table of North Korea specialists talking about um, Kim Jong-un, is he alive? Is he dead? Is he dying? Uh, and the simple answer is that no one actually knows anything. I mean, there's, there's North Korea is such a black hole of intelligence that and we really don't know anything. Um, I, I suspect he's fine. I mean, maybe not fine. I suspect that maybe he's had some sort of underlying health issue when they're dealing with this. This happened once before with him. He dropped off the face of the earth for about three months and everyone thought, oh my God, what's going on? And then he came out and he was walking with a cane and he had something done to his ankle uh, or his leg or, or whatever. Uh, and, and I suspect the same kind of deal here. Um, satellite photos are showing there's not really anything unusual going on inside of North Korea. The military is not mobilizing to protect the borders. Nobody's bringing tanks into the capital because they're planning a coup. Um, I suspect that he's going to emerge from this at some point and things will be okay. Uh, if he's not, I mean, who knows, right? And that's, that's part of this roundtable I'm doing. They, they, they sent, they asked like, I don't know, let's say 30 North Korea policy people, you know, what's going to happen if Kim dies? And the simple answer is, who knows? Um, his sister is pretty prominent, uh, uh, Yo Jong, but I, it, it would be really unlikely for a young female, she's like 30 years old, for a young female to, young female to take power. That goes again, I mean, that's almost never happened in, in the Communist Party. It's almost never happened in, certainly not happened in North Korean society. Uh, it's still a pretty paternalistic culture. Um, I think most likely there's a power struggle. She gets purged. One of the military leaders takes over. Um, and then, you know, we got to start asking ourselves what, what happens with their nukes and their chemical weapons and their biological weapons and everything else that they do. Um, and, and I don't know what the answer is, but it's going to be a really dangerous period. Most likely, if you look at the history of North Korea, so here's, here's a, we, we talked about my other piece being kind of counterintuitive. North Korea is kind of counterintuitive in that when they're the most unstable, they get the most provocative. Right? Most countries, when you're having economic problems and you reach out to another country and say, help me, you then cooperate with them. North Korea does the opposite. When they're falling apart, they reach out to the rest of the world for help. 
And then when they get the help, they extend their middle finger to the rest of the world. Um, and so I think what happens is the more chaotic it gets, if Kim dies, the more belligerent they're going to get. Uh, hopefully there is somebody in the State Department in the White House who will recognize that and we will not go down a path towards war or greater crisis. Um, but it is a really serious wild card. And um, there's no way to, to, to know what's going to happen until we know what Kim's health is like. But the simple answer, I guess, is that there's no good answer, really. You know, if Kim lives, it means we have the perpetuation of the worst, most brutal dictatorship of the modern era. That includes concentration camps and rape and violence and the, the spread, proliferation of nuclear weapons and drugs and counterfeiting. I mean, North Korea, here, North Korea is not really a, a, a state. It's more of like a organized crime dressed up as a state. So if he lives, we get more of that. And if he dies, we have instability that could take us down a road where nobody wants to go. What are your thoughts on uh, United States-Korean relations since Trump's been in office? Um, well, let's say uh, A for effort. I mean, I, I credit where credit's due. Trump went on, a, a, tried an approach that hadn't really been tried all that much. Um, you always, was particularly when you're dealing with a country like North Korea, you have to think outside the box sometimes. Um, and with regard to his outreach efforts to the North and the personal relationship he established with Kim, um, he tried. That's, I guess, give him points for trying. Um, but I was pretty critical of it the whole time. Um, I don't think that person-to-person -person diplomacy is ever really a good thing. You have to have sort of a structural um, effort going on at the same time so that if there is a problem in that personal relationship or if, say, one of them dies, any gains that have emerged continue on. So I've always been worried about that. Uh, I think that Trump clearly didn't do his homework about North Korea and he fell into some of their traps that ended up giving them publicity and legitimacy and credit, uh, credibility in a way that they didn't deserve. So every time Trump meets with Kim on a one-to-one -one basis, Kim uses that for domestic propaganda, right? Look at how great I am. I have forced the mighty United States to meet with me on a one-to-one -one basis. And so that's why usually we hold out the idea of a presidential summit. That's like the end of the list, right? That's not something we give up at the beginning. We do it at the end of the negotiating process. And along the way, you give up some substantial steps, right? You do some things to prove that this is serious. And then maybe we can have that face-to-face -face visit that you so desperately want. So we kind of gave away the end game right at the front. So I was kind of critical of that. Um, and in the meantime, he's really damaged relations with South Korea. And you know, I don't know how closely you followed that, but there's been this fight over the budget, the extent to which how much money South Korea pays um, for American troops to, that are stationed there and how much they pay for the upkeep of the, the military base. There's a huge Camp Humphrey's huge base in South Korea, as well as how much they're paying for weapons that the United States gives them. It's been a pretty big dust up. Um, you know, Trump came to office pledging to remove American troops from South Korea, which was a big deal inside South Korea and raised some heads. So um, that relationship has really suffered. And even just in the last couple of weeks, they're at loggerheads about how much Trump wants South Korea to kick in for the cost of American defense inside South Korea. Uh, so it's damaged the relationship with the South. So, so right now, I, I'm pretty gloomy. I mean, I would give Trump let's say a D plus, um, because he gets a few points for effort, but in the end, kind of, he's helped North Korea establish itself internationally. Um, he's damaged the sanctions regime because he brought North Korea back into sort of the, the, the nation of, you know, the community of nations and, and forced them closer to China and Russia and some of the other nations that are cooperating with North Korea, while at the same time damaging relations with the South. Fascinating. Uh, and, you know, not uh, a lot of uncertainty for the future, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, God. I mean, the, the whole world is unstable right now because of the coronavirus and because Trump is pretty unpredictable, as are the leaders of lots of other regimes, but Korea is the worst. I mean, you know, the other factor here is the coronavirus inside North Korea. So South Korea did a great job. I mean, they're generally regarded as the model for getting it under control. North Korea denied it was happening. You know, they denied to the outside world that they had any cases of it. And now we're starting to see the impact of that, I think, is going to be really devastating inside North Korea.
Um, I mean, no, it's still really early, but it looks like they're going to be devastated. I mean, they have no good healthcare system, right? And the elites don't really care so much about the people in rural North Korea. So at the same time that Kim has disappeared and you may have this political instability and they're testing missiles and have developed nukes and they have biological and chemical weapons, the nation may just be absolutely destroyed, you know, economically and in terms of lives lost because of the virus itself. So, I mean, so chaos everywhere in the world right now, um, but the Koreas are, are, that's the epicenter. I heard some rumors that they executed their first case of coronavirus. I think that was just a rumor, but did you hear anything about that or know yeah. anything about that? I mean, rumors, yeah, um, but, but no one really knows. You know, there's so many rumors, right? We, we, when Kim came to power, we heard, you know, he had his, his uncle, Cheng Song Tech, fed to wild dogs. I mean, not true. He had him killed. Um, but the rumors are, are about North Korea are always so crazy that, that who really knows? It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, this is a brutal totalitarian regime. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the Kim family, this is, this is like Hitler. This is like Stalin. This is like the Khmer Rouge. They, are, they have that bad of a record on human rights. Uh, but we just don't really know at this point. How do you think uh, relations with China are going to be impacted? I believe it was Missouri right next door to us that is suing China. And I, I've been hearing a lot of buzz about this for how they handled uh, coronavirus. Uh, there's, this seems to be a lot of speculation with uh, relations there deteriorating further also. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's been a, a relationship that's also suffered in the Trump years. Uh, you know, he has put, uh, you know, Trump is a businessman. And I think he has put everything on a, a business model of the idea that everything will be done based on financial transactions. We'll act to our benefit. You'll act to your benefit. Sometimes we'll argue. Sometimes we won't. Um, but he's not in any way committed to the, the growth of what political scientists sometimes call liberal internationalism. And, and when I say liberal internationalism, I don't mean liberal like Democrats. I, I mean liberal like um, really in the years of the Cold War, the U.S. has led this effort to expand traditional American values of free trade and democracy and rights for women. And, and that's created this, this network of, of allies, you know, that, that work through, you know, NATO, for example. And, and uh, you know, the U.S. built up um, it, it, as, as part of the Cold War effort against the expansion of communism. And Trump has no use for that. Uh, and that's played out in a lot of these, these nations we've talked about, but particularly China. Um, and any gains that we had made with China because of years of sort of encouraging them to maybe start to, democ uh, to democratize or at least embrace capitalist principles, you know, Trump doesn't care about any of that. So when we're on this transactional basis, sometimes we're really going to butt heads. And, and I think it is a step back. I think that always best to have diplomacy and negotiations and an effort to uh, maintain good standing with nations that are going to be your chief rival, partly because, you know, the China economy is enormous and because China wields huge influence in East Asia. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Again, everything is, is incredibly unpredictable at the moment. Strange times. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's like, I mean, uh, it's, it's almost stereotypical in uh, the ways that I can assess what's going on because, I mean, people do say unprecedented a lot, but yeah. when you do your research, there is some precedent. Like when I was reading about the Spanish flu, I'm like, mask, social distancing, a lot of the same stuff that's going on right now. Um, yeah. But everybody's throwing around that word, well, this is unprecedented. Uh, maybe in terms of like the scale of, uh, what everything's grown to from then to now, uh, making the impacts and repercussions worse, but s still that's um, it's a lot, a lot of unknowns. Yeah, you know, students always come up to me and they say, history always repeats itself. And I say, well, history doesn't ever repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Um, and the point I want them to understand is, it, it's dangerous to say history repeats itself because then you take current events and you oversimplify. Right? You say, well, we've been through this before. And you don't recognize that every incident, every crisis, every issue has its own unique qualities that you have to deal with. Um, and it's not this simple cause and effect model constantly repeating itself. But certainly there are similarities and there are lessons to be learned. So you're right. As you say, people keep saying unprecedented. And it is unprecedented. But at the same time, there are lessons we can learn from the past. 
Um, but, but you're right, man. I, I've been, I've been trapped in my house for the last four or five months thinking, my God, this, you know, th this is like living in the great depression, you know, and I teach the great depression a lot and I'm seeing so many similarities and I'm thinking coming out of the great depression was a whole new economic system and maybe not as dramatic as the ones that, um, the, the, the transformations that we saw in some of the other Western nations. But, you know, we came out with a, a social security, we came out with a social safety net that the United States had never had before. And, you know, we came out with a relationship between military and industry that we'd never had before. Um, it's going to be the same here. I mean, dramatic changes are going to come from this. Uh, I don't know what they're going to be, but we are living through eras. That's really the first one in almost a century where all we can say is everything's going to be different. Yeah. Yeah. Remains to be seen. Yeah. Uh, well, man, uh, just kind of wrapping up, what, uh, what are some things you have, uh, you're working on, the for the future, you mentioned, um, this round table, uh, Korean article, is that an article you're working on? Yeah. Book? So, so the round table is, as I said, it's just this, uh, <laughs> a real short, it's a real short piece about the future of, of, uh, Korea, the future of North Korea after Kim. Um, I do a lot of that because of my position as director of the Korea Institute at Ohio State. Um, so I do a lot of these think pieces. But the big project is the one I was talking to you. It's African-Americans in the military. So this all started, to, I guess, to connect it to Korea. Uh, I wrote a piece in the Journal of Military History a couple of years ago where I argued that one of the critical moments in the history of the civil rights movement that no one ever talks about is the Korean War. And I said, what happened in the Korean War, like the war breaks out, 1950, and for the first year, we get the same thing from the African-American community. You know, here's our chance to prove ourselves. Let's go off to fight. Now, it wasn't the same as World War I, because in World War I, the African-American community said, no protests, right? We're, we're, we're not going to protest. We're not going to strike. We're not going to, you know, have rallies. We're just going to go off and help win the war. World War II in Korea, they say, okay, we're going to go off and help win the war. We're going to fight. We're going to rally. But we're still going to protest at home. So th there's a little bit of a difference. It's that... You know, if, if you've ever taught World War II, you know, it's the double V campaign, victory against fascism overseas and victory over racism at home. So they're both going on at the same time. So that's how Korea starts. It's a year of, okay, we're still protesting at home, but we're going to show ourselves as good Americans. And then I looked at a couple of events in the middle of the war. There's some issues about some court martials of African-American soldiers in the middle of the war. There's a re really bad treatment of a number of a very well-respected African-American military units because they're still segregated, uh, even though they're not supposed to be, but they are. And these African-American units are treated really unfairly. And it's like the middle of 1951. And I felt like that's the moment when African-Americans say, you know what, screw this, you know, we're done. You know, we've been fighting for you guys, World War I, World War II, here again in Korea. You keep telling us this is about freedom and fighting in defense of the free world. And you keep treating us this way. And so I say it's about the middle of the Korean War where the civil rights movement says, forget it. You know, we're, we're adopting a much more radical, confrontational, in-your-face sort of approach that most people associate with the 1960s. And I'm saying, no, it starts here in the 1950s. So anyway, that came out in this journal. And a number of publishers came out and said, ooh, this would be great if you could do it for the whole 20th century. Um, so that's what I'm doing now because I'm incredibly long-winded, as you have already seen in this interview. Uh, they said to me, make it a really short book, like 80,000 words. And that, that can be, that's, that's what we want for classroom use. So, so shoot for like 80,000 words. Well, I'm covering all four wars and World War I is just about done and it's about 50,000 words. So I'm now projecting the book's gonna be 150, 175,000 words. So I, I've missed that 80,000 target by just, you know, a little bit, uh, but whatever, you know, that's, uh, the, the fun is the research and the writing. So if it goes a little longer, I don't really care. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm running the Korea Institute here and, and I'm doing a lot of stuff in, uh, East Asia outreach and, you know, the way the world is right now, East Asia is pretty central. You know, we talk about the virus starting in China. We talk about the South Korean model for, for addressing it. We talk about the North Korean model in terms of what a disaster it's going to be. Um, so there's a lot of connections and it's certainly going to keep me busy. I got one more question, man. I've thought about this a couple of times since you've been chatting. I know that you probably are talking uh, about it in this uh, project you're working on. And this is something, yeah, I've, 
been reading several books on on Vietnam. I didn't take Woods for Vietnam War when I was in undergraduate, but like the a lot of my core study is 45 to present uh, when I was in undergrad and grad school. Since I've been teaching, I haven't been doing, but I've been reading and listening to a bunch of books. One thing that uh, it's come up a couple of times is uh, the disproportionate amount of African-Americans serving in Vietnam. What, how does that happen? Well, it's a combination of things. Um, obviously, some of it is race. Um, I do a whole day on this, actually, in my Vietnam War class. Uh, so there's still, obviously, racism in the United States. But I actually, I have always defined Vietnam as the first class war um, in which it was disproportionately fought by um, poor Americans and African-Americans are at the bottom of the economic ladder. So the reason that African-Americans, so it's the same with Latinos, also fight in a, a, and are killed in a really disproportionate rate in Vietnam. And it's less because America is implementing racial, racist policies, although there is some of that, uh, particularly with the draft, but it's more because of, um, you know, the economic situation means that these are the people who are less likely to get college deferments and they're more likely to need the money to go off and fight. So there's some really interesting statistics, like the number, and I may get them wrong right now because I, you know, I haven't taught this in a couple of years, but like the number of Harvard graduates who died in World War II, who died, a number of Harvard graduates, I think just from the class of like 1941, 42, who died in World War II, is, is, it's like 50, 75, something like that. And the number of Harvard graduates who died in Vietnam is like four. Um, it, it's really astounding. And there's these great community studies. There's a community in Alabama. I don't remember which one it is, but uh, it's got this really wealthy town. Um, and right next to it is a really industrial working class town. They're like the same size population. Everything's the same, but one is rich white people and one is poor working class people. And it's, it's like no one from the rich town dies and 30 something people from the poor town die. So I think the reason the war hits African-Americans so hard is much more about class than it is race. And, and so if you're interested in this, go read a book by Christian Appy called Working Class War. Okay, thanks. And, and the stories will absolutely blow you away. Yeah, I was gonna ask if you had a, a good it. suggestion. Yeah, All I right. mean, my whole lecture on, on the Vietnam War, I, so I, do, I do a class on the Vietnam War, my whole lecture that day comes from Christian Appy's book. Awesome, thanks. Yeah. Fantastic. Hey, well, uh, Mitch, I really appreciate you taking the time for the interview. Um, hey, happy to, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, anytime you want to talk, just, uh, just shoot me an email and then I'm happy to chat. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. Have a great day. We'll talk Thank to you, you soon. Good luck. You too.